is the word of the Lord according to Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. God, you are a great God, a mighty God, sovereign and supreme above all in knowledge and wisdom, power and authority. Your dominion is over all that you have made and nothing was made without you. There is none like you, Lord. Your greatness is beyond our comprehension. God, we come now to, to hear you through your word. God, I stand as a mere man with the word. God, I pray that, that you would communicate your word to your people. God, we come to hear, but we can't hear unless you speak. God, we would not see anything in the word without you by your spirit making it visible to us. We come to your word, God, and we, we need to see. God, good Father, we come expectant to hear you speak to us. Give us eyes to see, give us the ears to hear. What we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. And we pray this in your good name. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, good morning, church. Good morning. If you aren't already open there, please open your Bibles up or Bible apps up to uh, the book of Mark. If you don't have a Bible, we have a bunch of them here, so raise your hand and we can send somebody to get one. We'll have a lot of the, uh, a lot of the secondary text that we're going to look at today will be on the screen, uh, but our, our primary text here in Mark, we will just have uh, in the Bible, so it'll be helpful to have a Bible in front of you. So briefly, before we move into the text for today, um, if you're new with us here at Franklin City Church, welcome we're really excited to have you guys. We love the Bible. 
Uh, our belief is that it is best and healthiest for the church and most faithful to the Bible and to our God of the Bible to have an overall week-to-week pattern of walking through sections of Scripture. So we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with that, where that's at, it's for the second book in the New Testament. Go to the New Testament, past Matthew, and you'll find Mark. So we've seen much in Mark so far about the birth, the life, and the ministry of Jesus. And chronologically in the text, we've arrived in our last few weeks to what's referred to as the Passion Week, which beyond just sounding epic and apparently great for making movies, just references the last week of Jesus' life and ministry leading up to his trial and crucifixion. So let's start out in Mark chapter 12, verse 18. And Sadducees came to him. So we'll stop there. (laughs) First, I should answer the obvious question. No, I'm not going to stop after every five words. (laughs) You guys are like, this is going to be three hours long. I'm smelling the food too, so we are all in this together. No, but this is the first exclusive interaction that Jesus has in the book of Mark with the Sadducees. So I think it's important that we have a bit of an understanding of who these guys are. And so the Sadducees were one of the predominant parties that made up the Sanhedrin, which was the highest legal court in the Jewish people of the day. So think of it as essentially being the supreme court of the day. passage that Grant preached last week, and they, uh, it started with the phrase, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and Herodians. The, the Sanhedrin is the, the they. They sent to him some of the. So the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to Jesus was an intentional effort on the, Sag, on the Sanhedrin to approach Jesus with questions. The Sadducees were predominantly wealthy, aristocratic, socially elite, and very friendly with Rome, since they were predominantly concerned with maintaining their positions of power and authority over the people. So it would be accurate to see the Sadducees as the white collar of religious leaders. Of the 71 seats of the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees occupied the majority of them and held the higher-ranking positions. So when we see in, in, in the Gospels, uh, the positions referred to as the chief priests and the high priests, those would have predominantly been Sadducees. They were very, very strict legalists, so even more so than the Pharisees. And so the historians tell us that they would have been very harsh and even savage in their application of the Mosaic Law and the execution of justice against those who broke it. So in contrast, the Pharisees were more of the blue-collar leaders. They they were more of the people's leaders. So legalistic for sure, but less harsh and fundamentalist in comparison to the Sadducees. So because their influence with the people, the common religious views of the people would have been more closely reflective of the views and the teachings of the Pharisees. So it's important, it's interesting to note here that there would have been numerous differences and points of contention between the Pharisees and the Sadducees as leaders. The Pharisees believed in the sovereignty of God over all things. 
They were Calvinists before Calvin came along and made it cool. Whereas the Sadducees were of the belief that uh, the determinant factor in the affairs of men in history was the free will of man. So they were the Arminians before Arminius was wrong. They also disagreed greatly on what they considered to be the canon of authoritative scripture. And this is important to our text today. The Sadducees believe that, the on, that only the Torah, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, also known as the Pentateuch, or the Book of Moses, was authoritative scripture. Whereas the Pharisees held as authoritative the Psalms, the prophets, as well as an oral law, which was a collection of orally communicated traditions uh, and int- interpretations of the law that later got documented and comprised a book called the Talmud. So regarding the doctrine of Scripture, we see that Sadducees were, in a sense, the theological and doctrinal conservatives or even fundamentalists of their day, whereas the Pharisees would have been likely labeled more liberal, or at least in matters of theology and doctrine. So then we come to the issue in today's conversation, the topic of resurrection. Looking at verse 18 again, And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. So the Sadducees are not into the resurrection. A little bit of context, the Pharisees believed in a resurrection, uh, as we saw earlier, both in a, a national resurrection of Israel, they awaited a coming Messiah that would resurrect Israel as a nation, as well as a personal, physical, spiritual resu- resurrection. Along with this, they believed in the general existence of the supernatural, including angels and demons, uh, which would have also been things that the Sadducees would have denied. So what would have informed the Pharisees' belief and thus the belief of the day, so the context, the, the people that are listening to this conversation, what would have informed the belief in the day on the resurrection? There are a lot of passages in the Old Testament that clearly teach of this, and so let's look at at a few. They should come up on the screen here. Psalm 16 tells us, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor let your Holy One see corruption. So David knows David, as he's writing the psalm, knows he is going to go to Sheol, the grave, but is confident that he won't be left there. He doesn't speak of the grave with finality, but with security and gladness in the hope of a resurrection. Psalm 139, 8, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. David here affirms the existence of a literal heaven separated from the place of the dead and expresses God's presence even in all places. So Psalm 49, 15, But God will, future tense, God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. David knows he will die, but he's confidently anticipating ransom from death and being received, future tense, by God. So let's venture outside the Psalms here for a second. Job chapter 19, For I know that my Redeemer lives. 
This is Job in the context of great suffering. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. So Job here is intensely and hopefully encouraged in joy and present suffering, his eyes lifted and lit in confident hope of resurrection. We see here even specifically stated that the resurrection will be physical as well as spiritual. After his body is destroyed, yet in his flesh he will see God. Daniel chapter 12 Those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Daniel informs us that there will be a resurrection to eternal life and also a resurrection to an eternal death. Last one here, we see an intense glimpse of resurrection prophesied in Isaiah. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall raise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. But do you notice something here about where these examples of the resurrection come from? The Psalms, David, Isaiah, Hosea even talked about the resurrection in many other places through the Old Testament. But the Sadducees didn't receive these books as books of Scripture. They believed only in the Torah to be the authoritative word of God, and the Torah doesn't, at least not explicitly, teach specifically on the resurrection. So since they didn't see it in the Torah, they didn't believe it to be real. Their belief was simply that after death, the body and the spirit just simply ceased to exist. And there was no life after death of any kind. So let's ask the obvious question then that comes to us as we start out this text. Why? Why would the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection ask a question on the resurrection? Great question. Thanks for asking. Mm -hmm. We already know from back up in verse 13 that the intentions of the religious leaders in these conversations is to trap him in his talk. After the parable of the tenants, the leaders got angry and fearful, and it says they left him and went away. Then they returned, and from Jesus' conversations with the Pharisees and Herodians on taxes that we saw last week to this conversation into the next and through the end of chapter 12, we never really see an indication of a break. This is all one continuous conversation in the atmosphere of to trap him in his talk. So we know this is the intention of this conversation as well with the Sadducees. So they, among the rest of the leaders, hate Jesus and are fearful of him because the people are astonished and marveling at his teaching. We see here, even in this, the carnal mindset of the Sadducees. Kind of sneak peek into the next few verses that we're going to look at. Jesus is going to inform them that one of the reasons why they're wrong is because they don't know the power of God. Their whole mindset here is carnal and not at all spiritual because we see what's guiding them. 
was influencing their beliefs, their teaching, their emotions, their reactions to Jesus, and ultimately their downfall is a lack of faith in the power of God and their supremely influencing power of man. So I'm reminded from the scene, a scene from the movie Gladiator. If you haven't seen it, it's the story of a great Roman general, Maximus, who's close to the emperor. His son gets jealous, plots to kill the emperor and Maximus and his whole family, and succeeds at killing everyone but Maximus, who gets sold into slavery as a gladiator. Proximo, the owner and trainer of the gladiators, is having a conversation with him, revealing that he was once a gladiator, and but was called before the emperor and granted his freedom. So Maximus says, you ask me what I want. I too stand before the emperor. I too want to stand before the emperor as you did. Proximo replies, then listen to me, learn from me. I wasn't the best because I killed quickly. I was the best because the crowd loved me. Win the crowd and you will win your freedom. So Sadducees had a similar mindset to this. Men of position and authority, men of power, it was their identity. And this encounter with Jesus reveals that earthly power, power, which their knowledge and position gave them, was their God. So much like Proximo's view, view of power, since what ruled them was the power vested to them by men, which is exposed here by their fear of man, They compose this ridiculous scenario to approach Jesus with, hoping to discredit him by making him look like a stumped fool in front of the people. How do we see that here? Because Jesus, because this scenario is based on a doctrine that they don't even believe in themselves, but they know the Pharisees and the majority of the people believe in and have a significant amount of future hope vested in. So if they can stump him on the resurrection, they accomplish two things in the watching eyes of the people. They make Jesus look like a fool because he lacks the ability to answer their question. And they make the doctrine of a resurrection look absurd because he's unable to reconcile the obedience to the Mosaic law, which they do believe in, with the concept of a resurrection based on the idea of a perfected version of earthly life, which is how the Pharisees viewed it. They viewed it much as a continuation of earthly life, perfected, not, not racked with sin. So they would have viewed the resurrection as a life that would have contained marriage and likely children. So let's take a look at the scenario they pitch him. In verse 19, Teacher, Moses wrote for us. Note that they base their scenario on a text that they do affirm as God's word. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. So they build a well-crafted but slightly absurd scenario based on the law referred to as Leverite marriage, 
where basically a, a man, if a man died without having son, the man's brother would marry his widow, and the first son they had would take the name of the deceased brother, be considered his legal descendant and heir, and carry forward his name and receive his inheritance. This comes from Deuteronomy chapter five, back chapter 25, if you want to look at that later. Family lineage was very important, and this allowed for the continuation of a man's family line if he had no son before dying. This would also have served in protecting widows within the nation of Israel as God's people from potentially marrying outsiders, which would have not only removed them from the family and the worship of God, but would have also moved them into the family of foreigners and inevitable idol worship. So it was a practice that served at the time as a means of both God's provision and as a means of God's protection of his people. So we see a couple of uh, examples of that in Genesis 38, uh, starting in, in verse 8. Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her. Raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground. And as, so as to not give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death. We see as an exam- this as an example, and also as affirmed by God during this time, evidenced by the fact that Onan was killed for his wickedness. And we see another example of this in the book of Ruth. Ruth was a widow with no son, no close relative to take her in marriage. She married Boaz, who was near relative to Elimelech, who was her father-in-law. Boaz was willing to marry her and did, and referred to it, and is referred to as the kinsman redeemer and gives her a son, Obed, in whose line comes David, and eventually the Messiah, Jesus. So these, these would have been examples that the Sadducees uh, knew very well. So the Sadducees craft a situation based on the law found in the book of Moses, which they affirmed, but drawing on the Pharisees' theology of resurrection, which assumed that life and the resurrection would look like life on earth. But a resurrection life, they believed, would certainly include marriage. So they end the scenario with the question in verse 23. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. So here is where the story shifts a little bit. So stretch out. Loosen up. History lesson is, uh, we're, we're past the history lesson here. So picture the scene at this point. Jesus is approached by the highest and most powerful of the religious leaders of the day. These guys epitomized knowledge and power, even among the rest of the religious leaders. They were the ultra-conservative, true-to-the-script, theological fundamentalists. They held the Torah as the ultimate, divinely given, authoritative rule for all of life. And they knew it, they knew it well. If it was in the book, it was law. If it wasn't in the book, it wasn't a thing. So we should have a sense of the gravity of this scene here. The intimidation factor that the Sadducees would have had in this scene we get a sense that there was a lot of people watching this encounter, and they're probably holding their breath at this point as the Sadducees finish their question 
and waiting for Jesus' answer. So Jesus begins his answer in verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus does a mic drop. So Jesus leads out his reply by exposing them to be wrong. So this is not really how experts would tell you to manage conflict, right? You're wrong, and here's why. I've tried that before. It doesn't work. (laughs) You're not going to win a lot of people in general with that approach, but let's remember the context here. They're coming to trap him in his talk. They're confronting him in front of the people to discredit him with the people. There's no fear of God at work here. It's all fear of man that is driving them. So there's no humility or genuine desire to know the truth in their question. It's a hard-hearted, faithless, malicious question that they're bringing to Jesus. Let's contrast this just for a second by looking at another example of Jesus being approached. In Mark 10... The rich young ruler. Kevin did an excellent job walking us through that text, and we saw a man also who lacked faith, faith, but who asked a genuine question What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answered him, looking at him, loved him, and said to him, Go, sell your stuff, and follow me. Jesus didn't cut straight to his error, though the man was rich with pride and had plenty of error to be confronted. But met him with a tender, gentle instruction and a call to follow. But the Sadducees here are hard-hearted. Proverbs offers us insight in 28, in Proverbs chapter 28. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. There's a connection between the fear of the Lord and a soft heart, and those who don't fear the Lord but fear man will come to ruin. Proverbs 3, towards the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. So we see here that Sadducees come with a hard and scornful heart, and Jesus responds to them accordingly. His answer is controlled and gentle, but very direct and clear, cutting straight through through the question and exposing their sinful hearts. Jesus says, is this not why you are wrong? The word wrong here comes from the Greek word planeo, which means to wander, to go astray, to deceive. So it's true of the Sadducees that they're wandering from the truth, but it also has an active implication here as their teachers, something they're doing as leaders, they're leading others astray. Another place we see the same word used in the book is in the book of Jude, which warns also specifically of false teachers, describing them as waterless clouds, wild waves, wandering stars. Describes the false teachers as wanderers, similar here. So Jesus then ties their error, their wandering, to two ignorances. He says, you know neither the scriptures 
nor the power of God. Jesus exposes their error, and then in one controlled, wise, precision move, he takes out both of the legs that they stand on, knowledge and power. These guys are super smart. They know the Torah inside and out. They taught it. They judged according to it. Knowing the scripture was their job. It's what they did. So how is it that they knew not the scriptures? We'll come back to that here in just a minute. But after Jesus exposes their error, he does answer their question about marriage directly. Though he answers it according to what is true about resurrection, which is quite different than the view that shaped their question. He says in verse 25, For when they rise from the dead, when, not if, so he's affirming the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So the God of the Bible is the God of resurrection, the triune God who as Father, Son, Spirit existed eternally before time, completely content in perfect community with himself, created all by the power of his word for the praise of his glory. He created man in his image and created marriage for his purposes, namely for procreation to fill the earth with his image bearers and spread his glory on the earth so procreation was to spread god's glory and also after the fall for population replacement in a world in which everyone dies in his answer to the sadducees question jesus is taking them past the fundamentally flawed question of whose wife would the woman be married who whose whose wife would a woman be married to seven men, be in eternity, and is showing them the resurrection, and more specifically, the God of the resurrection is so much greater than they see. He compares men and women in the resurrection to angels, which interesting is interesting because the Sadducees don't believe in angels. But I think what we see here is that Jesus, besides just affirming the existence of angels to the Sadducees, he's aware of the Pharisees' teaching and the crowd that's watching, even as he directly answers the Sadducees. So we're not going to get deep into the topic of angels here, but what Jesus is saying and comparing, he says that we will be, that we will be like angels, not be angels. So in comparing the resurrected state with that of the angels, is that there will be no death. Angels don't die, therefore they don't marry and procreate. We will be like angels in the sense that we will no longer marry or procreate because death is dead in the resurrection. There is no more death in the resurrection. Their view of the resurrection as a continued state of earthly life is really a man-centric view. It's a view that lacks an understanding of the institutions God created on earth and the purposes that he created them for, uh, and more significantly displays that they know nothing of God's greatness, the otherness of God, and his infinite power and ability that is so far above their conceptions. So in this, we see that they know not the power of God. So after he answers their question on marriage specifically, he takes them back to the scripture. So look at verse 26. 
And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus goes to their book, the book of Moses, to show them that the resurrection has been sitting right under their noses. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection because they haven't seen it explicitly taught in the Torah. So Jesus takes them to the Torah to show them the resurrection. Have you not read in the book of Moses, the passage about the bush? So the passage about the bush comes from Exodus chapter 3. We're going to look at this briefly. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame, appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. But the Lord saw that he turned aside to see. God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, and the God God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So two things I want to point out here. The first thing in this text we see that the Sadducees would have known very well is an example of incomprehensible power displayed in the burning bush. Think about, just, just picture a, a burning bush. Okay. Every earthly fire requires fuel. There's no burning of a fire without something burning up to fuel the fire. Yet we have a fire here in a bush made of wood that isn't burning the bush. This power on display in this fire is supernatural. The fire is not burning anything up, therefore showing that it in itself is self-sustaining, is able to to sustain itself. It's not dependent on the bush. Fire that fire should require something to burn here requires nothing. And the fire that should completely consume a bush that it burns in spares the bush. God's power to sustain himself and his power to preserve are on glorious display here in the bush. He is powerful to consume what he wishes to consume, and he is powerful to preserve what he wishes to preserve. We saw in Mark a couple of weeks ago that Jesus cursed a fig tree to teach his disciples about faith, and we see here that God preserves a bush, and we should be encouraged in our faith as we see God's power displayed there. Yet, though the Sadducees knew this very well, they knew not the power of God. The other thing we see here and the thing that Jesus specifically points us to and is pointing the Sadducees to is found in the way God proclaims himself to Moses. 
he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have all died by the time this situation comes about with Moses. But God says, I am, not I was. So Jesus is showing the Sadducees here in the scripture that they affirm that God's relationship, his Godship of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is present tense. They are not dead, they are alive. And God is their God. Jesus takes them to scripture they know, likely had memorized, that clearly displays a resurrection and the power of God. And yet Jesus says they knew not the scripture or the power of God. And then Jesus concludes with the amazing proclamation in verse 27. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So the Sadducees came to Jesus to trap him in his talk. Mighty religious leaders of the day and so-called experts on the power and the knowledge of God. They pitch him a crafted scenario to discredit him and make him look like a fool. And he answers them in grace and truth, cuts their identity right out from underneath them, and exposes them as a faithless, wandering, deceitful people. Shows them to be the fools. So where do we go with this? I think the warning here is, is pretty clear, uh, at least to some extent. The Sadducees are called out by Jesus as in error because they didn't know the Scriptures or the power of God. So we're warned in a very real sense that not knowing God's Word or God's power leads to error, to wandering. But these guys were the experts on Scripture. They probably had a large portion of the Torah committed to memory. So with all of their knowing How could they not know? It would appear here that there is a knowing that is knowing and a knowing that is not knowing. Which begs the question then, what is it to know the Scriptures and the power of God? So we're going to let Scripture speak directly to this. Proverbs 9, 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Proverbs 2, 6. For the Lord gives wisdom from His mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Isaiah 11, prophesying about the Messiah Jesus. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Genesis fifteen six, and he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So we begin to get a picture of here is that knowing, truly knowing the Scripture and the power of God are inseparably connected to each other and are found in the same place, namely a person. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
Hebrews 1, 1, Long ago, at many times and in many places, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, whom the religious leaders rejected. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. John 14, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. One more, Jesus, uh, John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. And life comes through faith in Jesus Christ, which he turns, which he turns knowledge into knowing. Faith in Jesus Christ turns the knowledge into knowing. So as we start to wrap up here, I want to take a minute or so to speak um, specifically to a certain group of people. A room like this is inevitably filled with different heart postures. We come in with different heart postures. And while I've prayed for you all, I've felt a particular prompting to speak specifically towards anyone who would hear this, who would see this passage of Scripture, who is a child of God, soft and receptive in heart, but who may be struggling with discouragement and your lack of knowledge of God, knowledge of Scripture, or felt experiences of His power. Jesus was speaking to the Sadducees as a group of hard-hearted, faithless scoffers. And we have an enemy who would love to twist Scripture and take that necessarily strong and pointed rebuke of Jesus to the Sadducees and use it to cause doubt and unbelief. So maybe you're a newer believer who's just now learning. Maybe you're a believer who for a long time Maybe you've been in a period of, uh, of seeming silence of God and you're struggling with how long it seems to take to grow. Maybe you're wounded by hard-hearted teachers who have hammered knowledge as salvation. Maybe you relate to the Sadducees and feel driven primarily by the fear of man. Hear this. this the error of the Sadducees was not that they didn't know enough. The error was that they didn't believe God. Faith is not merely believing in God. Faith is believing God. Believing that what he has said in his word is true, that, what he, that he will do what he has promised to do. Faith is a gift, Ephesians tells us. So take this encouragement from Second Peter chapter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us his own to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature 
So brothers and sisters, believe in God's word. His promises are sure. His power is sufficient. Jesus bore all of your sins and has covered you in his righteousness. Take joy in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So as, as uh, Seth comes up and, and prepares to lead us continuing in worship, I want to say something here also to if, you, if you're here and you don't know God. Hear Jesus' words to the Sadducees and don't be very wrong as they were. You too will one day have a conversation with Jesus on the subject of the resurrection. He is God of the living. No one will simply cease to exist. All will rise. All will stand in judgment. All will give account to the God of the living. Those whose faith is in Jesus will live forever in the presence of God. All who have rejected him will spend an eternal consciousness in God's wrath. Don't be as the Sadducees were. Hope in God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. God is a self-revealing God who delights to be known. He's shown us in his character and his power through his word to sufficiently inform us to godliness, to keep us from wandering, to equip and encourage us in life now, in view of and with hope for the resurrection, where we will know him in the fullness of joy, in the presence of our great and glorious King Jesus. So let's end by hearing an encouragement from Paul to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might, he has worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So church is not God of the day. He is God of the living. So let our hearts rejoice and sing with the psalmist, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore.